Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me John Sales. Hello, John. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, I'm doing well. It's a real privilege to have you on the podcast. Uh, as I was saying in the preamble, you, 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 you are sort of living, living film history. You, I, couldn't, I wouldn't know where to start with, uh, with, with your career. Uh, I mean, I've, I've recently written an essay about the howling for, uh, for a Norwegian okay. publication, for a publication uh, yeah. It was uh, banned outright there, apparently. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a movie that kind of holds up. Um, you, you never know when you make a movie if they're going to get dated really quickly or, or whatever. But uh, I've seen it a couple times uh, in the last couple of years. And uh, it's really good work. Wonderful cast. And, you know, it's quirky. And it's um, something that Joe Dante does very well, which is have a movie be funny without being... Um, just campy. Hmm. So it, it, it's scary when it needs to be scary, and it's funny when it needs to be funny. Yeah, just just to give people an idea who don't know, perhaps I'll, I'll just rather than do like a whole history, I'll just I, I was telling other friends of mine that I was having on the podcast, and and uh, I got different reactions. So it was uh, I love Lone Star was was one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Limbo, I can't believe the audaciousness of the ending was another reaction. <laughs> Does that, ring, does that ring a bell? Oh, yeah. We, we, we've had people say that they rented it at a video store and took it back to the video store to complain that the ending had been chopped off the movie. 
Well, look, let's jump into what we have come to talk about, which is the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot. Um, by the time this goes live, people will have been able to listen to Joe Kramer talk about writing the film score and Bob uh, Kruskowski talk about writing and directing it. But, you're, but you, John, you're, you're the exec producer of the film. Um, one, of many, one of the many executive producers. So with, with that in mind, then, what, what for you is, was your role as exec producer? Maybe not to define the term exec producer, but what, was, what did you see that as being for you? Yeah, you know, I, I, I've had that title on a couple different movies, and sometimes it's been kind of, you know, because I was kind of a, a consultant and investor. Mm-hmm. I was an investor on this one. I was just a kind of consultant. And, you know, for a, for a first-time filmmaker, um, and my executive producer credits have often been on first-time filmmakers, some of it is just um, talking to the filmmaker about the things that they're going to encounter um, and maybe save them a little time and maybe save them a little panic. Mm. Uh, you know, just, just this, is, this is what's up ahead and you want to pre-think some of this stuff and, and some of it you're not going to be able to control and just don't, don't worry when it shows up. Um, you know, it might be something as simple uh, as on your first movie, you really don't have to pretend that you know everything. Um, you know, if you get a good crew around you and, and good people to work with, um, they're there to help. You know, they're, they, they have skills too. It's, and, a, it's a uh, common, that's a common thing that I get from directors that come on is that some of them have that kind of light bulb moment where they're on set for their first film and they, and they realize that they don't have to know everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and, and, and truly, if in the moment you say, you know, I, I, you know, give me a minute. I don't know what we're going to do next. That's so much better than just saying something off the top of your head and starting down a road that, um, you know, you don't need to go down. Uh, I think crews and cast are very sensitive to having their time wasted. And yeah. uh, they'll do take after take if you're actually asking for something different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but... Uh, uh, you know, if if it's not different, if you're just treading water or it's clear that you don't know what you're going after and you're not able to define it or define it anymore, uh, people just feel like, well, you know, maybe I should go on automatic pilot and not, you know, kill myself because um, if the director doesn't know where we're going or doesn't know what he wants, neither do I. It's, it's interesting. It's an aspect of, like, sort of difference between being decisive stroke impulsive versus leading isn't it i suppose yeah i think i think you know some of it is you really are in it together it is a collaborative medium mm-hmm. that does mean that you stop and say okay guys what what are we going to do next you mm-hmm. know or where do you think we should put the camera but it is you know asking the cinematographer um here's what we have left to do in the day what should we do first you know, you know where the sun is in the sky, um, <laughs> you know, and and that may be before you even start the day, but it may be right after lunch. You know, here, here here's our new, you know, uh, reality because of what we did or didn't get in the morning. Maybe we're ahead, maybe we're behind, but how should we proceed? Um, and then with an actor, you know, you each actor, you have to handicap them. Um, some actors want more information and some want less. 
and some actors are better on their first take and some are better on their fourth take. And uh, if you've got one of each kind in a scene, you have to quickly learn who's who and make sure that that person who is good in their early takes has the camera on them right away. And then maybe by their fourth or fifth take, when they start to fade, the camera's over their shoulder pointing at the other factor. Ah, okay, okay. Now, before we go into more detail about the film itself, I wanted to ask you, um, given, given this is in the context of um, The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot being shown at Frightfest, what is one of your early or first memories of seeing a horror film? And what was it? And what do you remember about that experience? Uh, I think it may have been called The Beginning of the End. It's a giant grasshopper movie. <laughs> <laughs> And it was just the it was just the coming attractions, and uh, I was very small, and it was at the drive-in, and it, it seemed really really scary. I mean, I had nightmares about those giant grasshoppers, and I have seen it recently, and um, the movie is so low budget. I think Peter Graves is the star of it. Mm-hmm. The movie is so low budget that the effect of the giant grasshoppers crawling up the sides of buildings in Chicago was done by taking a still photograph of buildings in Chicago and putting big grasshoppers on them. <laughs> and then, oh, really? And then making a machine gun noise and, and blowing them off with a air gun or something like that. Um, so as an adult, it wouldn't scare you at all because it's, it's, you know, it, it's, not even the state of the art for 1952 special effects or 54 special effects. Um, but it's one of those things when you're little, you know, for instance, um, we, we grew up with a kid in our house who didn't notice that when a film was dubbed, a kid's film was dubbed, like Pippi Longstocking, mm-hmm. her lips didn't match up with her voice. That's, that's not in your, your visual vocabulary yet. So you're scared by different things when you're a kid than than when you're older, and scared. You know, even within a film, different things may scare you. There is there is something to be said for, and I mean, you wouldn't want to terrify yourself as a child, but remembering the the sort of the naivety in the viewing and the fact that you're you're not just imagining what you're being shown, you're you're projecting it onto the real world. You're you're contextualizing it as being this could happen in the real world too. Not this is a film. Um, Absolutely. There, there's a bunch of movies that I remember seeing in color that when I've seen them again, I realize, oh, that was black and white. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So my in my imagination, I had colored them in, colorized them. Wow. Uh, but, but actually, they were in black and white. Well, look, now, moving on to, to, to working on the film with uh, Bob Kruskowski, um, you, interestingly, you, you first came together, I suppose, uh, from what Bob tells me, working on a spy, trying to develop a spy film that you'd you'd um, you'd written about Jules and Ethel um, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, the Russian spies. Who... Yeah, you know, I, I forget exactly how Bob got in touch with me, but um, he had he he showed me this um, uh, kind of half cartoon, half live action thing he made called Elsie Hooper, which is mm-hmm. very impressive. Mm-hmm. And impressed by the filmmaking in it, that was based on a cartoon that he had drawn at college. Right. And um, 
And we just got talking about movies, and he knew about the uh, Rosenberg um, trial. We weren't really working on it together. Hmm. And then he mentioned that he was, um, you know, working toward making a feature film. And, uh, you know, I just kind of said, well, good luck. <laughs> and then he sent me the script. And what was interesting is I, I have written over 100 screenplays and probably half of them have been rewrites, you know, have been jobs to rewrite other people's screenplays. Yeah. It's pretty rare that I get something that's original that I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And this, this was one that I hadn't seen before. And one of the things is that it, it surprised me even in the reading so that you start with a, to me, it's the second greatest title since Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Um, it's just a great title for a movie. Mm. And then you have, you know, you have a great title. You have to live up to it. <laughs> um, you know, it, it can't be a trick to get people in the door and then the movie doesn't deliver. or It's not about what the title indicates. And as I read, I had imagined, oh, you know, okay, you know, the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot, you know, I imagined a, a, a genre movie that was different than the one that I found that was not as much of a character piece that, um, uh, and one of the things I liked about it was that is that it, it, it pays off in the genre things, but you absolutely care about and believe the characters. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was kind of how I started. I mean, I come to this obviously having seen the finished film, so I get the privilege of <laughs> seeing it or not, not trying to imagine from the script, but I, I, I opened my review by saying that the, 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 the pulp tale, the sort of prom- promise of a pulp tale of kind of ridiculous proportions of, say, mm-hmm. Inglorious Bastards, Tarantino sort or, of... Re- or re- Snakes on Plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that idea of retelling real history, as it were, mm-hmm. in, in a kind of fictional sense, um, it doesn't do it as, as gratuitously as Inglorious Bastards, but, like you say, it still does deliver on its genre promise. It just does it in a way which basically mm-hmm. tells the story of a great American hero. In, in many mm-hmm. senses. It was interesting. I, I, I think I recommended to Bob that he see Slaughterhouse-Five, the, you know, the movie that was made from the Kurt Vonnegut mm. um, novel, because it was the only thing that I could think of that was that had that mixture of kind of almost science fiction, mm-hmm. but also, you know, kind of real human behavior. And so you could, you could you know, take it either way of, you know, this is a study of... of this aging guy, um, or you could say, okay, wow, that's pretty wild. That's, you know, that's kind of alternative history. So what, what, readings, I mean, I've read as many scripts as you've read and written as many as you've written, uh, for something to sort of obviously catch you off guard, as it were, um, what, what was it about the, the way it was done that, that sort of got your attention then? What was it about this, this, this character study? Well, you know, some of it is that it starts very slow. It starts, it starts really, you know, introducing us to this guy at a certain stage in his life, um, and and really kind of getting to know him and not quite knowing his backstory, but but knowing his present day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when the um, the action starts, one of the things that I loved is um, the two guys from the government who come to him just at some point say it's the Bigfoot and there's no explanation. <laughs> there's nothing um, there. You know, it's just, yeah, the Bigfoot. Sure. Um, so 
it's it's that way of saying we're doing alternative history, but we're not going to apologize for it. We're not going to explain it. Mm. This is just, you know, every movie is its own world and it has its own rules. Um, I, I often use the example of, you know, the same filmmaker, Steven Spielberg, you know, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, there is comic violence. Well, he also... Um, you know, made a movie about the Holocaust. And there's no comic violence in that. There's real violence. Hmm. Uh, those are different worlds presented to you. And, and when you enter any, any movie that has, um, you know, that, that, that's well made, you kind of say, oh, this is the tone of that movie. I, I should be very afraid, <laughs> you know, yeah. or the tone of this movie, nothing awful is going to happen. Um, and, and occasionally, um, you know, a movie will get away with changing tones midway. Um, I think three Kings did. I, I think, uh, uh, Jonathan Demi's something wild that I had a small part in, um, did, uh, but it's pretty rare that you can change tone in the middle of a movie or keep changing it back and forth. Yeah. Cause when uh, I spoke to, when I spoke to Bob about it, I said it was almost in the film. It's like. You're watching this wonderful sort of unveiling of who, who Sam Elliott's character of Calvin Barr is, mm-hmm. and then Ron Livingston arrives. Right. And then you're like, okay, the world is upside down. This isn't actually a load of self-reflection. This is almost like it's been preparation for this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then once, once you get into the, you know, the hunt for the Bigfoot, um, it's actually very realistic. You know, it's it's just a creature, and mm. and he's got fleas, you know, and he's he's looks pretty funky because life has chewed away at him, um, and but he wants to live, and you know it gets pretty, you know it it, it has elements of uh, another movie I don't think Bob has seen, Hell in the Pacific, to me, you know, is these two desperate characters, you know, in the wild somewhere, and they're stuck with this thing where one has to kill the other. But in that, in that moment where it has the, has the change in tone, we, 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 we're not taking it any less serious what, what who Calvin mm-hmm. Barr is about. I mean, he even sort of lectures uh, the, the government agent on history not being a comic book and being a hero is, yeah. not, is not cartoon. So we're, yeah. we're, the central yeah. message of the film is really delivered, isn't it? And it's delivered hard at that point. Yeah, and he's not, he's somebody, he didn't want any of it. Mm. He didn't want World War II to happen. He didn't want to be in it. He didn't want to be, you know, an assassin for the government. Um, And it's just been laid on him. And, you know, uh, now he's got to come out of, out of, you know, it's kind of a classic story. There are Bible stories. Um, The Book of Mormon actually begins with Mormon, who's a very, very, very old man and a former military leader, being approached for this final battle. And uh, he says, no way. <laughs> no, I'm not doing it. And then they, they finally say, look, nobody, nobody can lead us like you can. This is just one last time we're going to ask this. It's a pretty classic story. You know, there's Greek mythology where, you know, people pretend to be crazy so they don't get grabbed and taken off on, on the Odyssey or whatever. Um, and, and Barr is one of those guys. He's very reluctant to be drawn back into this thing that somebody else might think was glorious and heroic. 
um, it wasn't glorious and heroic to him. Um, he was not happy to be there, and he was lucky to get out alive. Um, and he realizes, okay, yeah, I, I did what I was supposed to do, but um, he's not sure that it was um, useful in ending the war. But Bob, Bob mentioned to me that you, you, you see it as a samurai film. What, what does that mean? Well, the, the, you know, it's kind of a Ronin samurai film, which yeah. is, uh, you know, so many of the Kurosawa films are, are about guys after the, the samurai system is starting to break down. Mm. But they have this personal code that they have to live up to. Mm. And, and Barr is this guy. He's a very lonely guy. And he has his personal code, and it may mean I'm not fighting anymore, or it may mean, okay, um, I'll do what you want, but it's going to be on my terms. You know, at one point, he takes the walkie-talkie, and he throws it into the, to the river. Yeah. I was going to say, there's that bit before, uh, before he even takes on the mission where he's talking to his brother, and he tells <laughs> his brother he's not going to do it. And his brother says, well, of course, that means you're going to do it then, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, he just, uh, it, it, something kicks in with him of, oh, uh, I guess, I, I wish I wasn't the one who had to do this, but people are going to die. And I guess me killing somebody. And, and I think he's really thinking of him as somebody um, is going to be for the greater good. And. I guess I, I'm, I'm the one who's got to do it. Now, g g given in your role as, as, as a producer where you, and you, you've got this script and you like it, but then you're obviously no, no script is sort of ever perfect. So you're going back to Bob with, with notes, as it were. And obviously you must have had a, a library of notes in your, in your career. So how, how and, and obviously as a, as a writer yourself, how, how, do you, how do you avoid sort of, Telling Bob as the writer director what you want, as opposed to what the film needs, if you see what I mean. You know, quite honestly, on, on the movies I've been executive producer, I don't give script notes. Okay. Um, I just say, you know, uh, I see what you're trying to do here. Mm -hmm. um, I like it. <laughs> Good <laughs> luck. Um, you know, this is your movie, and and so, for instance, I was executive producer on. Uh, Karen Kasama's first movie, Girl Fight. Mm -hmm. um, she was working for me at the time, and I think we talked a lot more about boxing than we did about what she was going to do with that particular movie. Okay. Um, we talked about boxing movies um, and boxing, but I never gave her a script note. And with Bob, the same thing. Um, you know, I, I, I would talk to him about other movies he might want to see, about um, talk quite a bit, actually, about the special effects in The Howling mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the work that Rob Bottin did and um, things to think about of ways to shoot that, you know, of, of, you know, there are tricks that you can do with puppets and close-ups and this and that and the other thing. And then every once in a while, you have to bite the bullet and do a wide shot and, you know, you know, staging fights, things like that. Um, but I, I, I didn't do any script notes. Uh, and the same thing, um, I was, I think, executive producer on uh, 
uh, Nancy Savoka's movie, uh, first movie, True Love. Mm. And remember, I just liked the script, you know. And so when we talked, it was about um, you don't have much money. <laughs> you know, I, I've made movies in four weeks. Uh, made three or four movies in four weeks. And when you don't have much money and you don't have much time, you know, what you want to talk to a director about is how to maximize that time, mm. how to, how to pre-plan, how to, you know, um, pre-think your setups so that maybe, you know, cause when, when I think about, um, getting through a day, it's not how many pages you're shooting. It's how many setups you're doing. Okay. Where the camera move and the lights have to move, and so if you can streamline your coverage, so you're not doing twelve angles, you're doing eight angles. You're much more likely to get your day, but you're also much more likely to give your time, your actors, the time that they should get to really explore their characters and 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 not feel like the clock is ticking. Now, I mean, one thing that I said to Bob that I say to all directors, is, new directors, is one of your jobs is to make the actors feel like there are no time restraints, even though there are. <laughs> you know, you, you're, you're fighting the light going and, and you're worried about the clock ticking and you're running out of money and you don't have any money to do extra days. Um, but the actor should not be thinking about that. So it's kind of making everybody relaxed while being aware of the clock. Yeah, yeah. And, and giving the actors the help that they need um, to, to do good work, but also not making them do things over and over and over um, just for coverage. You know, if you can afford two cameras, it's great. You know, you can you can cut the amount of coverage in half, the, the amount of times, you know, for instance, I, I, I remember in um, uh, uh, um, Casa de los Babies doing a scene with like seven or eight women at a table and a big, long conversation. And it was, you know, fairly, you know, kind of nothing too dramatic. Uh, but because I had two cameras, we only had to do it 10 times instead of 20. You know, if you've done something 20 times and finally the camera is pointed at you, um, you, you well may have left it in the locker room. You may have done it well, but the camera wasn't pointed at you, you know, but now you're, you're tapped out. So, so a lot of what you're, you, I'm talking about to first-time filmmakers is, You've got a good script here, you know, cast good actors, hire good crew, um, but, you know, to help them help you, you have to be as efficient and, and kind of um, prepared as you can be. It's interesting you've picked, picked on a scene that would seem to be sort of, um, an example, sorry, that would seem to be sort of an easy thing to shoot. I remember listening to uh, Damien Chazelle talking about what he found one of the most difficult parts of Whiplash was in, was in fact the family scene around the table because of mm -hmm. all the points. Because if you've got to get every point of view, like you said, yeah. that involves numerous amounts of pickups. The, the, the kind of set piece of a car crashing is, a, is, obviously, a, is obviously choreographed. But right. there's, there's ways of achieving it, isn't there, which is kind of... Yeah, you, and, and let's just say, when you do a car crash, you want three or four cameras. <laughs> <laughs> 
because you know, and 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 partly so you don't have to do it too many times, mm. but partly also because um, you're never going to get the same car crash twice, and it's also whenever you're going to have something with with good actors going together that's very volatile. Mm. Uh, if you can do it in two cameras, because you you know it. it you know, if they're good actors, it never will be exactly the same twice, and you don't want to lose any magic because you didn't have a camera pointed at somebody. I'm, I'm guessing. I'm guessing you, you you maybe had more involvement in at the editing stage with uh, with Bob. Um, you know, once again, not really. I I, I saw an early cut, mm. and uh, he had a, a few questions, and I I had a few observations, and some of it was to help. He had a couple decisions to make. Um, uh, he filmed the car crash where Barr's um, girlfriend is killed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and my advice there was to play both versions in front of audiences who hadn't seen the movie before and talk to people afterwards. Because um, both of those... You know, I, I, I've seen movies that were cut very different ways because people were fighting over the cut. Mm. And people will say, these are both legitimate, you know, movies and, and ways to go. They're just different. And, uh, you know, I even, I acted in one movie, uh, Bertrand Tavernier uh, directed, where there was his version in Europe and the producer and Tommy Lee Jones's version in the States. And they were both, both both totally legitimate ways to go with the edit. So so very often, you know, my my it, my notes are not cut this or cut that. Yeah. Uh, they are try this. You know, uh, you know, do do a version where you know you don't cut away to anybody else, and look at it and see if you like it. Um, but th- that's really. You know, finally, the filmmaker is the one who has to make, has to learn to make decisions, but also has to make the decisions. That sounds uh, a lot. I mean, it sounds a lot like the idea of in, in the writing stage, where it's like, we'll try writing that scene, but obviously, when you're editing, you're, you're limited in terms of options. But obviously, there must be options, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly there are filmmakers. Martin Scorsese, you know, often will shoot a lot more than he uses in the editing machine, editing room, mm-hmm. and he that that's his 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 thought process, and he makes sure the budget can handle that, um, so that you're shooting. You know, I, I'm I kind of come from the other point of view. Uh, you know, I, I I you know I'm a writer, and I am also going to edit my own stuff, mm. and so because I'm usually making a much more ambitious movie than I have money to make. <laughs> I, I have to make a lot of my decisions um, in, during the writing and then on the set. So I'm cutting while I'm shooting. And very often I'm moving the camera away from a setup when the actor says, well, wait a minute, you know, we only did three takes and I blew a line in every take. And I have to say, yes, but you blew a different line in every take. (laughs) I've got what I need for the editing room to build an even better performance than we did here on the set. You know, what you do here on the set doesn't matter. What ends up in the movie matters. Mm -hmm. And got everything I need to take what you did that I think was very good and make it even better. Um, We're moving on. And, and, And that's kind of how I've had to come to movies. 
um, to, to shooting movies. Um, so, so editing is for me is not a greatly reductive process. It's a process of taking what you have and getting the most out of it. And, and it, what it means is I, I don't spend as many weeks as many people spend editing because I just don't have that much footage. But it's, uh, I saw, I saw, it's, interesting, I've not, it's interesting. I've never thought about it in, that, in the way of there are many right ways of doing it. You've just got to find the, mm-hmm. the way that's right for your film, which is a different way of looking yeah. at it, isn't it? Yeah. And when you start to, to show it to people, mm. um, you know, you, you, they even maybe mix. You know, I, I think Bob, Bob got, you know, well, some people said, oh, we got to have that accident in there. It's, it's so, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, so visceral. Mm. And another said, you know, it, it ends up taking a little way away from Bar. Um, you know, it's almost like that's his sacred private memory and he shouldn't have to share it with us. And I get both, you know, you know, both things are, are, are totally legitimate. And, and then he made the decision that he finally seated the pants. It just felt right in his gut, um, when he went, went, you know, out with the final version. So those are the kind of things that it would give him notes on. Mm. Uh, I would talk a little generally about music. Um, and generally about sound, but um, he's got to actually pull the trigger and 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 do those things. Um, but one of the things you know with Bob is is just from even seeing Elsie Hooper, um, you know he's he's a guy who has a really 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 strongly developed visual vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You know his his visual storytelling is really really um, it's already there. This is not somebody who's learning that. Yeah, I, I, when I spoke to him, I said, I said, I, I couldn't get over how something as sort of, I guess, mundane on the face of it, of, as, as Sam Elliott sitting down to a TV dinner could convey mm-hmm. so much about a man who's done this hundreds of times and is very mm-hmm. much alone. I mean, it's, 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 it has no right to be able to say that much in, in, in that moment, but it does. Yeah, and and it's it it's not repetitive unless mm. it unless the repetition is making a point. Mm. Um, it, the it, you know it, there's movement, but it's not gratuitous movement. Um, and then you know we got lucky, you know, and 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 Sam was available and interested in doing the the part, you know, mm. and he does such a wonderful performance, you know. He and then Larry Miller is another one um, who was not my suggestion. I, I hadn't even started to think about who should play that. Mm. And just when, um, you know, Bob said Larry Miller was a possibility, it just, it just made total sense to me. Well, um, I've had John for, for more than I thought I would for the podcast, but just one, one last question, if I could, from in a general, in a general screenwriting sense, having, had, having, like you said, been involved with over a hundred screenplays from, for, for any writers listening to this, how how do you keep your imagination fresh in terms of how you might show something visually and tell a story visually in screenplays? What is it? What do you do to keep your yourself sort of refreshed, as it were? To you know, one thing that I do, and I, I you know, because I'm also a fiction writer, I write novels and short mm-hmm. stories. Um, one thing I often um, recommend to people who are kind of stuck on a story is either change the tense. You know, so if you're writing it in the past tense, write it in the present or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
or change, just look at your story, read your story, and then take a secondary character and tell the story from their point of view. So, okay. so one of the things I do as a filmmaker is constantly think about um, um, there's, there's the literal point of view, which is, you know, in many movies it's, it's mostly omniscient, and then a, occasionally you'll get a, a close-up and then a point-of-view shot, so you're saying, okay, I'm seeing what they're seeing. And, but there's also emotional point of view. Mm-hmm. Who, who are we emotionally tied to in this scene? And it may change. You know, it may, you know if there's, there's you know, a couple characters, um, even a bunch of characters like in my movie, um, that emotional point of view may change. And so one of the things you've always got to think about with your coverage and where you're putting the camera and how you're approaching a sequence is whose emotional point of view are you in? And, and who do you want the audience to be bonding with at that moment? Or do you want them to sit back and be seeing this from a distance? Um, you know, and that, that, you know, Hitchcock was very good at... Um, he was always in control and he was building suspense in that way. But every once in a while, uh, there's a, a great sequence toward the end of strangers on the train where you, you know, you, you're caught up in the suspense of the moment. Um, but you're actually realizing, wait a minute, I'm worried about whether the bad guy, <laughs> you know, way or not. He, you know, he's he's worked this thing so that I'm I'm kind of worried that the bad guy's going to get caught because he dropped his watch or his his cigarette lighter or whatever. Um, you know that thinking about that, you know, um, storytelling. You're always storytelling. Who's telling the story at that moment? Who, you know, who are we flying with? You know, whose whose emotions are we? rooting for or caught up in um that's that's a lot of keeping it fresh you know and and you know there you know for instance i'm writing a novel right now yeah and uh it's set in the in the 1740s and there's a point where it's right after the battle of culloden and they um they behead a bunch of jacobites um you know who who you know, lost the rebellion up in Scotland, mm-hmm. and they've brought them down to to London, and 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 I was thinking about, well, you know, how do I want to do the aftermath of this? And I realized, oh, and they stuck their heads up on um, spikes um, on on top of one of the gates, you know, and and I figured somebody had to do that. <laughs> What if I have a scene where a guy who's basically a janitor for a bunch of lawyers um, has to get the stepladder out and take these heads and put them up on the spikes? And there's, you know, he, you know, there hasn't been anybody that, you know, had been, you know, stuck up on spikes for 20 years. So the, the heads that are already there are skulls, you know, that are kind of falling apart. But he's got these big, juicy new heads. And he's never done this job before. He's not quite sure how to, how to pull it off. <laughs> you know, f- for me, that's often what's interested about you know telling a story of you know that has a c- certain graphic feel to it. 
Um, and it's an omniscient way of telling it. I'm not with any of the main characters at that moment, but um, there, there, there's something that's very powerful about it. Yeah, it speaks volumes for the world, doesn't it? As, as sort of as, yeah. at the same time as uh, giving <laughs> giving us a little detail all at the same time. Yeah. Well, look, it, it, it only gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Thank you. And congratulations on uh, The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot. Yeah, and I hope it's going to be at a theatre near you very soon. So do I. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly... There's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.